Well, it has been uh, just wonderful kind of walking through these, uh, these discussions about grace. And, uh, you know, grace is one of those topics you can never get enough of. Uh, and uh, it's just encouraging to me anytime I get to talk about uh, grace. We've uh, started out last night talking about grace in the first place, just kind of a foundational reminder of the meaning of grace, um, the definition of grace, how it connects to God's plan of the ages, how it compares to justice and mercy. Uh, and then we talked, of course, in the first hour uh, about grace for the race, what it looks like having been saved uh, to live by grace and to allow God's grace to help us as we navigate these sometimes difficult uh, path in life. But now we want to close out by talking about uh, looking forward to grace when all is said and done, the ultimate uh, purpose of God in the plan of the ages. And I don't know when the last time you looked at the last verse in Scripture is, but Revelation 22, verses 20 and 21 say, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, one of the things I love about these last two verses in the Bible is my two greatest passions in life. I've been in ministry 32 years. We've had Not By Works ministries for 22 years. And my two greatest passions are the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of the end times. And the Bible ends with a reference to both. It ends with a reminder that Jesus Christ is coming back, even though many people completely ignore that teaching of the Bible. As I mentioned in the first hour, 16% of the Bible is, constitutes unfulfilled prophecy, and yet people ignore it. But it also references, of course, the theme of God's plan of the ages, grace. God created man in His image. We fell through our own free will. And then even though we got ourselves into the predicament, by His grace and love and mercy, He reached down and solved the problem. And so uh, grace uh, face-to-face is what we're calling uh, this message. You know, you see this connection between the now and the then frequently in Scripture. For example, in Ephesians 2, Paul says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. He's talking about the church age and then the ages to follow. That grace is a recurring theme. It's undergirding principle of life. Second Thessalonians, Paul puts it this way, now may the Lord May our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace. I love that, good hope. You know, we we need something to hope for. The passage that we read as our scripture passage a moment ago talks about the blessed hope. And uh, that is that moment when we're going to see Christ face to face. So the great thing about grace is that it does not end at conversion. It does not even end at death. It continues throughout eternity when we see the one who saved us face to face. I'd like to invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 21. And I want to read just a portion of this passage. And then we'll zero in on some principles about grace then and there, grace face to face. In Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, we read, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, 
also there was no more sea. I mean, just think about that for a moment. The Bible, so far we've had 6,000 years of human history, and it tells a story that comes from a pre-fall perfection to sin entering the world and corrupting creation, full circle back once again to a pre-fall Edenic state in the new heavens and the new earth. The Bible is very clear that this earth is sold under sin. No amount of renovations or changes can fix it. It's got to be destroyed. And it will be. Peter talks about the same thing. And uh, then a new heaven and a new earth will come in sinless perfection. Verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. That concept of God being with us and we shall be his people, he shall be our God, that's a running theme in Scripture that refers to the ultimate deliverance from sin. When God who cannot look upon sin once and for all, we will be united with him in, in glory. Now, we're in, in Christ in, in positionally now. We have been made perfect. We have Christ's righteousness to us. And we have unmitigated access to the throne room in heaven. Hebrews tells us that in Hebrews 4.16. But there's an intimacy that still awaits that can only be achieved when we see Him face to face. And it's then that we will experience this, this tabernacle of God with men. It's then that we will see Him and, and understand things that we can only see partly right now. And then pick it up with verse 4, which I've got on the screen here. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. You see the frequent references here just in these first five verses to new, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. You ever feel like you need something new? We like new things. You know, that's just the way we're wired. And we can look forward as a motivating factor to when grace reaches its culmination. And all things are new. No longer are we dealing with the old way of doing things. Now, we're made new in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. So spiritually, we've already been made new. But again, we're still sold into this sin-stricken body, which is why Paul describes the struggle that we talked about in the last hour. But someday, even that's going to go away. It's called glorification. It's when this mortal puts on immortality, when this corruptible puts on incorruption. Because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. And ultimately, that's where we are headed. So as I was thinking about this idea of grace face-to-face, my mind went back to a message I preached about four years ago uh, on heaven. And, you know, I had just lost a dear friend um, who uh, was the same age as me, six children like we have, um, uh, almost the same age as me to to the month and uh, died in his sleep inexplicably. And it was a real, really tough time. And I went back uh, to Illinois, did the funeral, and, um, and we still are very dear friends with his wife and their kids. 
But, you know, sometimes you just need to talk about heaven. It's, and that was kind of the way I felt back then. And so I thought, well, maybe as we think about grace face to face, it would help to just see what God's word says about heaven. What, what will be, we be doing there? I mean, it's not a concept. You know, uh, Hollywood, uh, as well as a lot of bad man-made religions, have created this false notion of what heaven is like, that we're sort of floating around with wings and cloud-like creatures singing kumbaya or something. That's not the biblical reality at all. Um, the Bible is the only standard for our beliefs, and if we want to get a glimpse of glory, if we want to know what grace looks like when all is said and done, we've got to go to the Word of God. So I just want to give you a few uh, characteristics of heaven. The first thing is we will be beholding Christ. That ought to be at the top of anyone's uh, list. Um, it'll be a dream come true to be able to look upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who took our place on the cross. I mean, think about it. No matter how real He is to us now, no matter how much we study about Him in the living, written Word and learn about Him from Scripture, no matter how much faith we have here and now, nothing can possibly compare to when we see Him face to face. Seeing Him for the first time, catching that look in His eye, a knowing look, because He knows my name, and He died for me, and He loves me like no one else could ever love me. What a moment that'll be to behold Christ. Now, if the Lord comes back, which I think is very near, could happen at any moment, that's the doctrine of imminency, which the Bible very much teaches, that the rapture could happen at any moment, then that face-to-face -face reunion will take place in the clouds. But if not, then the Bible, if, if the Lord tarries is coming and we die, then for believers to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I mean, think about that, present with the Lord. I understand He's with us, right? He promised, lo, I am with you always, even the end of the age. He's God. He's omnipresent. We cannot go from His presence, as the psalmist said. But there's something different that will happen when grace culminates in, in this eternal new heavens and new earth. We will behold Christ. On the authority of God's Word, we know that we will see Him and, and, and as He is, really, for the first time, 1 John 3, 2, we know that when He is revealed, that is unveiled at the return, we will be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Um, you know, maybe that's why Asaph in Psalm 73 wrote so eloquently, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire, Besides you. When we get to heaven, we'll gaze upon Him with unprecedented emotions that thrill every sensibility of our being, stirring the deepest feelings of our soul. For the first time, our eyes will actually look upon the One who, as we talked about, is the author and finisher of our faith. We will have the ability to express ourselves and show Him sincere appreciation for His priceless gift of eternal life like never before. We'll be able to love Him and, and, and give 
to Him our heart's full surrender and adoration like never before. It is Christ who will be throughout all eternity the fairest of 10,000 and altogether lovely one. What will we be doing in heaven? Well, we'll be beholding Christ. Grace face to face. What a day that'll be. But I also thought about that great reunion in the sky that we talked about in, from 1 Thessalonians 4 when we're caught up to meet the, to the Lord in the air. And if that happens in our lifetime, we also know He's going to bring with Him those who've already died, those who've already believers that have gone to be with the Lord. And regardless of whether it happens at the rapture or if we go the way of all flesh, there's going to be an experience in heaven where we're fellowshipping with one another. I mean, heaven will be an absolutely wonderful place for visiting with friends. I mean, think about it. Every time I come here, and I've been here, besides the two conferences I've done, I've been here for meetings and things. I'm jealous of your, both your auditorium here, which is outstanding, and your fellowship area. It's just awesome. What, and you've had some, many of you have probably been here for your whole lives, and you think, well, so ever since that was built, we've had incredible fellowships there. And you could think back to the warm times. And even you know, last night and again today after service, we're going to fellowship together. But nothing will be able to compare to the fellowshipping that we'll be able to do in glory. We'll have the privilege of meeting those of all other ages, as well as those who lived in our own time. Uh, but people for whom circumstances forbade our getting to know them because they lived in other parts of the world maybe. We'll talk and laugh and share in ways that we were never able to do on earth because of the curse of sin. King David put it this way, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Now we strive for that now, especially in this present church age, in the local assembly and in the body of Christ. We're commanded to do that. It's part of the call of the Christian but there, no unity, however much we may achieve it, this side of heaven, can compare to the unity when we see Christ face to face. This is what Jesus talked about early on in His ministry. Uh, we looked, touched on this a little bit last night in Matthew chapter 8, when after commending the faith of the centurion, He says, Many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom... Uh, the, the first phase of it, the, what we call the millennium on the old earth, begins with a kickoff party, uh, a massive banquet, uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And people of every nation, tribe, tongue, and language are going to come together, and we're going to fellowship. It'll be like one huge, perfect dinner party. you know. And the great thing is none of the ladies had to prepare anything. No pies had to be, no one had to make the potatoes, no one had to bring the corn casserole. It's all ready. It's all done. And Jesus also reminded us there will be many rooms in heaven. In my Father's house are many mansions. Mansions here literally means rooms or dwelling places or abodes. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. This is Jesus' words Thursday night in the upper room, the same time that He washed the disciples' feet, instituted the Lord's Supper, later was betrayed in the garden, arrested, tried, and then ultimately by Friday morning was laid in the tomb. So this is the earliest inkling we have in God's Word 
of the rapture. Jesus is speaking to those disciples and he says, I'm going to come that where I am, you will be also. Not where you are, I will come, but where I am, you will be. And he's talking about what Paul would later describe under the inspiration of the Spirit is called the rapture. So in heaven, we'll be fellowshipping with one another. We'll go from room to room, mansion to mansion, engaging in conversation about matters of common interest to us. And as we talk with each other, it will be real and genuine and true and honest since we'll be free from sin and selfish thoughts and self-occupation. Every word will be profitable since there's no gossip in heaven. Nothing will be self-serving. It'll just genuinely be sweet fellowship. I mean, think about it. If you want to find out something more about the Garden of Eden than what was revealed in Scripture... You can go visit our great, 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 great grandparents and if by chance on arriving at their palace you find thousands of people waiting at the gate to do the same thing as you, uh, then it'll seem like only a slight delay in a timeless eternity. And you won't become impatient because there's no sin in heaven. Time won't be any consideration. And maybe while waiting you'll have the opportunity to meet several others unknown before that time. Maybe one of those you were instrumental in leading to Christ upon earth but had no idea. But you'd never seen them earlier than that moment in heaven. If you or uh, you and your family maybe or you and your friend, you wanted to learn more about Moses and, and the crossing of the Red Sea, well, you can just plan a trip to his palace uh, where it can be discussed in person. And while, while you're on the way to his house, you might take a side trip to Joshua's home. Hey, Josh, we're on our way to Moses' pad. We thought we'd stop and say hello. All in a timeless eternity. What will we be doing in heaven? We'll be fellowshipping with one another. A sweet, sweet fellowship of grace that we get a foretaste of now when we're walking in the Spirit. But nothing can compare to that grace face to face. We'll be experiencing joy. You know, heaven is a place of true joy. Jesus often talked about joy in heaven. Remember that? Especially in Luke's gospel. Uh, the, the, the Greek word joy is kara. Uh, in fact, if you know someone named kara, they're probably a joyful person. If they're not, they should change their name <laughs> because that's what kara means, joy, right? And it's a theme in Luke's gospel. If you remember... Uh, um, going back to the, the birth narrative and, and Christmas morning. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great what? Joy that shall be to all people. And then you get to Luke 15 and, and the parables uh, there of the lost uh, coin and the lost uh, sheep and the lost uh, son. Is there one more? I can't remember if there are three or four. Anyway, all about things that get lost. And when they're found, guess what? There's joy in heaven. There's joy in heaven. And we'll get to experience that joy like never before. David put it this way, In your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. Just imagine what the fullness of joy will be like. Think about the most joy you have ever experienced. The happiest you have ever been. And then multiply it by a million. And then multiply it by a million again. 
and you still won't even be close to the level of joy we'll experience in heaven. And hand in hand with this new level of joy will be the absence of sorrow. What did we read at the outset of the message? God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. New things are joyous things. Old things bring pain and bad memories, you know. The older we get in this old physical body, the more we feel it, don't we? Knees begin to creak, back aches. It's just, you know, you just get old, right? Um, But when we see Christ face to face, we'll have new things to rejoice about. And it'll be an unprecedented fullness of joy. What else will we be doing in heaven? Well, we'll be singing, (laughs) hope you like music. Um, we'll be singing in heaven. Here's that word new again. They sang a new song, saying you are worthy to take the scroll. This is the 24 elders that represents the church in heaven in Revelation 4 and 5 there, preparing for the judgment of God that's about to be poured out, the wrath of God that's about to be poured out on the earth in that final seven-year period that Daniel talks about. We talked about that last time I was here, the tribulation uh, period, and we've got plenty of material that sort of explain those prophecies in Daniel. But in the book of Revelation, which, by the way, is one of the easiest books in the Bible to outline. You know, the devil's done a good job of convincing people that's complicated. You know, I hear people say all the time, I don't, no, don't want to study the end times. It's too complicated. Nobody can figure it out. Revelation's too complicated. No, it's not. It's quite simple, <laughs> you know. Chapter 1 introduces the revelation, Jesus Christ. By the way, the name of the last book of the Bible is Revelation, not Revelations. No such book of the Bible. The last book of the Bible is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis. It means the apocalypse, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And he's introduced in chapter 1. Chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are literal seven letters to seven literal churches from Jesus to these seven ancient churches from the first century. And he's giving them commendation and rebuke. Then you get to chapters 4 and 5, and it is a beautiful section of Revelation that prepares us for what is about to unfold in that 70th week of Daniel, that final seven-year period that Daniel talked about. And chapters 6 to 18 describe God's outpouring of wrath. The seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bold judgments, all leading up to the battle of Armageddon in chapter 18. Then you get to chapter, so by the way, think about it, chapters 6 to 18, the bulk of the book, all deal with one seven-year period. Then you get to chapter 19, and we have the second coming of our Lord to establish the earthly kingdom. What a beautiful picture that is. And then, you know, chapters 20, 21, 22 here deal with uh, the new heavens and the new earth. But here in chapter 5, it's part of that beautiful section in 4 and 5. We call this a, 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 a justification for the wrath of God. I forget the word. It just it was, had it a second ago. A theo- not a theophany, but um, anyway, it'll come to me. But the question on the table is, who, what gives God the right to pour out His wrath? Why is God about to unleash the fury and wrath of Almighty God on the earth? And what gives Him the right? 
Who's worthy to open that first seal of God's wrath? And they sing, the Lamb. He is worthy because He shed His blood. And, uh, but they're singing this new song. So we're going to be singing in heaven. Um, I'm pretty sure you're going to be leading some of the choruses in heaven. I just have to believe that. And um, I'm not sure if they'll let me sing, but I'll be enjoying it from afar, I can promise. Um, you know, heavy hearts don't like to sing, but joyous hearts sing out loud. This is what Isaiah the prophet said, So the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Remember, when Christ comes back, He's going to gather believing Israel from the four corners of the earth, Matthew 24 tells us, verse 31, and redeposit them supernaturally in the land. That's a fulfillment of several Old Testament prophecies. And when they come back, they're going to come back joyously, singing, right? What a great day uh, that will be. So there's a connection between singing and joy. You see it here in Isaiah's prophecy, they shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I like that. You ever have one of those days where you just sigh? You know, I, I, I sometimes do that unconsciously. I remember one time I was walking down the hall at a school I was working for at the time, and uh, the president stepped out of his office, and he said, Everything okay? I said, Yeah, right, it's great. Well, you just sighed real loud audibly, and I didn't even know I had done it. But, you know, sometimes you just go, you know, just life can be that way, you know. When I think of the Dallas Cowboys the last 30 years, that's what I do. <laughs> My kids don't believe me when I tell them the Cowboys used to be something, you know. But um, what else will we be doing? I love this. We're going to be exploring the universe. We're going to be exploring the universe. You know, in this present life, we're unable to comprehend the magnitude and the beauty of the universe because we're limited in our mental capacity to understand it all. We're restricted in our, in our ability to travel through all the vast galaxies. We're not able to visit and see what lies on the planets or explore the million stars that we see dimly in the canopy of the sky. To travel around heaven, we won't need any cars or trucks or planes or trains or any other means of transportation because we'll move at a tremendous rate of speed in any direction. Remember, the disciples watched Jesus ascend into heaven according to Acts chapter 1, as they stood on the Mount of Olives. He just, in a brief moment, disappeared out of their sight. Well, that sort of traveling will be a great asset when we're outside the realm of time, space, and matter as we visit each other. We can explore all the marvels of creation, most of which are unknown to us now. Most likely, those who are most fond of travel and exploration will probably be the ones leading these expeditions, but you can come along and Anybody can explore. In heaven, every legitimate ambition will find opportunity for development. So we'll be exploring the universe. We'll be expanding our knowledge. I mean, this is going to be great. In heaven, we'll find all the answers. We'll find answers to theological questions like, how can God be sovereign and man have free will at the same time? <laughs> I mean, that's a biblical antinomy, meaning anti, contrary, namas, law, something that's contrary to logical law. The Bible teaches it, by the way, contrary to what some people suggest, but it's still beyond our comprehension. Romans 11 tells us that. 
but we'll understand the sovereignty free will tension. We'll understand theological questions like how can God be three yet one? We'll understand perhaps why God has waited so long to judge Satan and his demons. In heaven we'll find the answer to philosophical questions that have plagued the greatest minds on earth like retro-causality and time loops and quantum theory. All of that will just be child's play in heaven. We'll be able to solve ancient riddles like Newcomb's paradox or the grandfather paradox or the Fletcher's paradox with ease. The Monty Hall problem will no longer be puzzling people. We'll get it. Remote viewing will no longer be necessary since we'll have access to all knowledge. Paranormal questions, much of which I address in the series on Spirit of the Antichrist, will become clear. The the shroud will be removed. Things like skinwalkers and UAPs and shapeshifters and black-eyed kids and the Patterson-Gimlin film and the Nephilim, all answered just like that. Don't get me started on conspiracy questions. (laughs) Who really killed JFK? I mean, what about the Phoenix Lights or the Montauk Monster or Area 51 or Project Blue Book or Skull and Bones or Bohemian Grove or geoengineering or chemical ice nucleation or weather modification or Operation Popeye or 9-11 or COINTELPRO? I mean, is there really gold in Fort Knox? I mean, heaven will be a time of expanding our knowledge. Yeah, I mentioned my friend Garth. I'm jealous of him because... You know, he's already up in heaven, and we were like-minded on so much of understanding the the great Luciferian conspiracy that I teach about, and he has all the answers. He knows it better than we ever could have speculated about on earth, because he's already enjoying this expanded knowledge. What else will we be doing in heaven? Well, we'll be basking in the light. Basking in the light. You know, to bask means to bathe in warmth. To be exposed to pleasant light and heat. You know, like, like a, a cat that climbs up into the windowsill. Now, just to clarify, there won't be any cats in heaven, of course. <laughs> but, uh, but it's a good word picture for what it means to bask. I'm just kidding. I love cats. They taste like chicken. But um, <laughs> anyway... Um, <laughs> I always hesitate to pick on cats because I had a lady one time that just absolutely loved cats and it really, it really hurt her feelings. So if you love cats, I, I, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I'll pray for you. But, um, but basking in the light. You know, the Bible promises that in heaven, as we've talked about, there will be no more night. So, you know, coming home at night you know, without the outside lights on or walking into a dark room. You know what those experiences are like. Uncertain where the next step is. You know, especially if you have kids and you don't want to step on a Lego or something. And, uh, we won't have those experiences there because we'll be basking in the light. What a day that'll be. Grace face to face. Grace face to face. That's just a glimpse of what heaven. We could, we could dive into the scriptures all day and still never get to the bottom of all the principles in God's word that relate to eternity. Um, but until then, life here and now, well, we've got to hold on. It's going to be a tough ride. 
It's a joyful ride. We can and should find joy in Christ because of our relationship with Him, in the body of Christ with other brothers and sisters. We can and should experience joy in this journey. It's not a pessimistic outlook. It's not one that says, woe is me. We, we can and should, according to the testimony of Scripture, find joy in this life. But all the while, with one eye looking heavenward, recognizing that it's not about what we can see and feel and touch. It's about then and there. And I think that's really what Paul was describing here in Colossians 3. Uh, I come back to this verse a lot. He says, set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. So I'm going to close with an anonymous uh, poem called No Night There. I'm not one of these preachers that, you know, preaches and ends with a poem, very seldom actually, but this is something I came across that just the, the, the words of this, and we have no idea who wrote it. I could not find the answer to that question, but it is so perfectly describes what we're talking about when we speak of grace face to face. It's called No Night There. No night shall be in heaven, no gathering gloom shall over that glorious landscape ever loom. No tears shall fall in sadness o'er those flowers that breathe their fragrance through celestial bowers. No night shall be in heaven, forbid to sleep. These eyes no more their mournful vigils keep. Their fountains dried, their tears all wiped away, they gaze undazzled on eternal day. No night shall be in heaven, no sorrow reign, no secret anguish, no physical pain, no shivering limbs, no burning fever there, no soul's eclipse, no winter of despair. No night shall be in heaven, but endless noon, no fast declining sun, no waning moon, but there the Lamb shall yield perpetual light, mid pastures green and waters ever bright. No night shall be in heaven, no darkened room, no bed of death, nor silence of the tomb. But breezes ever fresh with love and truth shall brace the frame with an immortal youth. No night shall be in heaven, but night is here, the night of sorrow and the night of fear. I mourn the hills that now my steps attend and shrink from others that may yet impend. But no night shall be in heaven, oh, had I faith to rest in what the faithful witness said, that faith should make these hideous phantoms flee and leave no night henceforth on earth to me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for just this glimpse of heaven and, and the reminder that things will not always be this way. Lord, fill us with a great expectancy and hope and joy in this journey as we look forward to better days to come. And Father, I pray if there's one here within the sound of my voice, maybe watching uh, the live stream or maybe even in this room that has not uh, become part of the family of God by simple faith alone in Christ alone, your Son and our Savior, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. That today in simple faith, even now, right where they're sitting, they would uh, cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, I need a Savior. I'm a sinner, hopelessly lost, and I'm placing my faith today in Jesus Christ who died and rose again for my sins and is the only one who can forgive sin and give eternal life. Lord, we, we love you. We thank you for just the immeasurable grace that we've talked about this weekend. Uh, Lord, raise up men and women 
that can put these principles into practice. Lord, make it not just knowledge and theological truth, but translate it into changed lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.